Well, good morning. It's uh, it's great to be here. It really is. Uh, it's been awesome to see this church progress and its journey over the last couple years um, to where you are today. And I'm so uh, humbled and privileged to be here with you. I want you to think back to July 22nd, 2013. So not five weeks ago, but about 55 weeks ago. Where were you at 8 p.m. that night? You don't remember. I remember 8 p.m. that night. I was in South Tulsa standing on Brian's doorstep. It was about 103 degrees still. I'm starting to sweat. I knock. And that night I needed good news. Because the reason I was standing on Brian's doorstep is because uh, in the weeks and months leading up to July 22nd, I had received some bad news uh, along the way. Several churches that support the ministry of RUF at University of Tulsa. We raise our own money. Uh, Several families and key individuals had let me know that uh, they would be cutting their support or at least decreasing it. And so there I was a few weeks out from the start of school and I'm staring down a calendar full of events with cookouts for with food to buy for a conference with a hotel bill to pay. T-shirts sitting at home that I knew uh, were on the credit card needed to be paid for. And I had received all this bad news. And I'm standing on Brian's doorstep at 8 p.m. knocking, praying, hoping, needing good news from him. And so I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I'm excited. All of this is happening. And Brian answers the door and he's on the phone. So this is it. Like, this is my moment. I need this to happen. And Brian, he's on the phone. He doesn't care. And so he kind of waves me inside and gives me one of these, you know, it'll be a minute, it'll be a minute. And he ushers me back to his bedroom and he sits me on a chair in the corner and he pulls his iPhone down. He hits that top right button, the speakerphone, then hits mute so they can't hear him. And he says, hold on just a second. I've got to finish this phone call. This is Ronnie Dunn from Brooks and Dunn. The country music's most successful recording artist ever, more platinum albums, more everything than any other country music band. He's on the phone with Ronnie Dunn. And so he finished his phone conversation. He leaves it on speakerphone. So I hear the the whole thing unfold. It was incredible. Um, He hangs up a couple minutes later and he says, I got it. I got the deal. He said, I am now Ronnie Dunn's digital marketing consultant for everything he's going to be doing from here on out in his solo career. And he was jacked up. Brian was so excited. And I'm feeding off his excitement. I'm like, dude, I'm about to ask you for money. This is awesome. And his wife, uh, Courtney, comes in the room and they sit over on their bed. And I'm in the corner in this maroon chair. And I hand him my iPad. I start going through the presentation of what RUF is. And we're a ministry where uh, uh, I'm an ordained minister. And I, I go and I bring the word. And we teach Bible studies. And we have student leaders that lead Bible studies. And it's a place where people can come and, and not be pressured to make decisions on the spot for Jesus. But have time to, to, to think about stuff and process their own life and their hurts and their struggles and joys. And consider what the gospel might mean for them. And I was explaining that out. And it was awesome. And he stops me right in the middle of the presentation. He says, Brent, you can stop. And I've never had anyone do that. And it really caught me off guard. And he said, you can stop. Because Jamie McCoy likes you. That's the friend who got me connected with Brian. Jamie likes you. We know you are right. We think you're pretty cool. RUF sounds great. I'm going to write you a $6,000 check right now. And I thought, I don't know, Brian. I guess I'll let you. 
So he he literally pulls out his checkbook, writes a check for six thousand dollars, and I leave 15 minutes later. And I'm still shell shocked by the whole thing. I don't know what to do. Sarah and her mom are at home. I drive home and tell them, y'all, that night I needed good news and Brian gave me good news. In the first century, there was a whole land of people that were being oppressed by the Roman government, the Roman armies. They had essentially occupied their land. They continued to let them practice their cute little uh, Jewish religion under their oppression. But they were oppressed. They were enslaved. They were heavy hand under this heavy handed rule by the Roman government, paying these exorbitant taxes. And there's a whole land of people that needed good news. And those are the people who John the Baptist comes and talks about in this passage and who Jesus would turn around and say, I have that good news for you. But I know there are also those of us here 2000 years later who, like Bo mentioned, need good news. We're in these chairs and we've had life come unraveled in the last week or the last month or the last few years. It's just been a snowball of an event and you need good news. You need something to break in and happen. And in that culture in the first century, they had a word for something that would come in and change everything. And the word was gospel. You see, in the Greek culture, in, in just the time before Jesus came, Greece had been invaded by the Persian army because Persia was trying to take over Greek's domination of this whole countryside and this whole area. But Greek withheld at the battle at the battles of Marathon and Salness, and they sent their messengers out in the countryside saying, we are still free. We are not under Persian rule. You are still free to be Greek in every sense of that word. We won. They had received gospel through those messengers. There was a Roman inscription that was found in the first century that said this, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And what followed was a story of the birth and the rise and the coronation of a Roman emperor. And so that was good news to some. But what good news meant is it was an event that was declared that had life changing implications for everyone. And in this passage, Jesus comes and says, I have good news. I have good news. So what is it? You got to wait because there's a couple things we have to understand about it. First thing we have to see is that the good news is here. It's finally here. Because, as I mentioned, these people had been enslaved, oppressed. They couldn't really do what they wanted. Their their hopes were being tampered by the Roman occupation. And so these people are living these day to day lives unfree. They are not able to do and to be what their heart desires to do and be. And Mark starts off this passage quoting what might seem kind of a strange thing. But he starts quoting from this this Jewish prophet from 700 years before a prophet called Isaiah. And what Isaiah is saying is he's promising that one day, someday, a Messiah, which was a Jewish word for the anointed one, this this deliverer would come and would one day set Israel free because they had been ruled and oppressed for hundreds of years. But there was this promise from Isaiah that that one day someone would come and set them free. And John starts out. Or Mark starts out saying that before that Messiah comes, there would have to be a forerunner or kind of a herald, someone to come and announce that that Messiah was coming. And he's looking up, he's quoting Isaiah and he's looking at this Rastafarian dude at the river saying, this is happening right now. 
This is that forerunner to the Messiah. Get ready. And he uses the word, he says, repent, which is this great word just means turn around. Because you've been living as if God is finished with you. You've been living as if God is absent and as if he doesn't matter. And John the Baptist is saying, oh, he hasn't forgotten. And in fact, he's about to be here. Get ready. Get the house in order. Change directions. The kingdom of God is coming. And people, you can imagine with their skepticism, just like we would have been with their skepticism, they come down to the river wanting to hope that things might be different. Wanting to think that that good news might finally be here, climbing down into the river, publicly acknowledging, I'm going to hope again. I'm going to believe again, perhaps against all odds, against everything my family is saying or everything my friends are saying. I want to believe that what this Rastafarian guy is saying is coming true. And so they did. They were baptized. This summer, I was driving around listening to... uh, NPR. I wasn't just driving around listening to NPR. I was driving somewhere listening to NPR because I'm a nerd. And uh, NPR, there's this story. They're doing this report about uh, a number of college age students or recent graduates who are spending their own time and money to travel down to the Texas, Mexico border, the New Mexico, Mexico border, where if you've seen the news for some time, there's been somewhat of a border crisis. All these children and people fly uh, flocking across Um, the border into Texas, trying to be free, wanting a better life. But not everyone makes it. And that's part of the the sadness and the drama of this whole thing unfolding. And so there was this group of people who were giving their summers and their money to go down there and to pay for their own hotels and to go out into the desert to look for people who had died. And, And the story actually gets sadder. The reason that there was such uh, an impetus for them to go down there is that once people were crossing over in the desert, they essentially had about five days before the vultures and the beasts consumed the bodies. And so time was of the essence. They felt like they were doing something very meaningful, and they were. And at the end of the interview, the reporter looks uh, at this girl or turns the mic to her and says, so tell me, why do you do this? Why do you spend your own money and your own time to go out there and help in this way? And she said something that we can all relate to. She says, because I want to believe that my life matters. I want to believe that there's something that I can give myself to that's that's bigger than myself. That I know that I'm making a difference. Think about those people in the first century who are witnessing this event at the river as as John is baptizing people as they crawl down the river. They're thinking, yeah, that's what I want, too. I want to think that my life might matter, that I'm not just going to be this person who just lives life, certainly not lives this enslaved life. I want my life to matter. And it's the same sentiment that you have in your heart that you want to do something. You want to be part of something. You want to to join into something that matters, that influences society for good. And John the Baptist is here with this great news, finally saying It's here. Everything you've been waiting for, everything your hearts have been longing for is here. It's here. The good news is here. Finally. Secondly, tonight, we see that that same good news, though it is here, it is also very humbling. It's very humbling. I don't know about you. I I love the idea of being humble, right? 
From time to time, Christians even pray things like, Lord, make me more humble because uh, we like the idea of being kind, of being you know, deferential to other people and wanting their good ahead of our own. We love the idea of being humble. We hate being humbled. My freshman year at OU, I was riding my bike. So already a nerd, but I'm riding my bike back to the dorm after I had had classes during the most busy time of the day. Monday, Tuesday or Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes at 10 a.m. in the morning. I'm on the busiest sidewalk headed back to the busiest dorm. And I go to pop the curb because the actual sidewalk was full of people. And I go to pop the curb and I pull up on the handlebars on my bike. But instead of pulling up something, there's a disconnect between here and my hands. Instead, I grabbed the front brake just as my momentum was going up. My bicycle flipped over the front tire. I broke my seat. I don't know because the seat landed on my back. If you think about that, books went everywhere. Grass stains on my skin. My It's just a total disaster. And it was humiliating. And I did not like that. It was humbling. I was humbled. I didn't like it. So what is so humbling about this good news? What is so humbling about what is unfolding here at this river? Is this. That Mark records this very first picture of Jesus in his account of the gospel. His very first recording of Jesus is Jesus climbing down into the river to be baptized by John the Baptist. What does that mean? So many things we can't talk about right now, but it at least means this. Jesus is the son of God, perfect in his power and beauty, in his wisdom, in his holiness. He had never sinned in his whole life. He was God in the flesh, God incarnate, perfect. And John had just been inviting people down to repent and be cleansed of their sins and to turn from their sin. And so the question is, why does Jesus go get down in the river? He doesn't have sin. He is not full of all the things that we are full of. Why does he do that? And it is this, and you cannot miss it. When Jesus crawls down into that river, he is saying, I am so willing to identify myself with sinful humanity that there is nothing I won't do. That there is, there is nothing I won't do to show you how much I love you. To show you how willing I am to identify, identify myself with you. I will get dirty with you so that you can be clean through me. Jesus comes alongside sinners. That was the, the, mark, the first mark of his ministry in this gospel account. And friends, that theme is carried out throughout the whole story of Jesus's life, even to the very end. He came to identify himself with sinners. It was really sad a few weeks ago, wasn't it? When uh, we read about Robin Williams or probably heard through the news about Robin Williams dying. It was awful. Especially when we learned of the unfolding events and his struggles with depression, all of that. It just makes your heart hurt. It made mine hurt because I loved him. I enjoyed his gifts. He was immensely funny, incredibly funny. I've been watching clips of him on YouTube since then. And I think my favorite clip of Robin Williams is in Mrs. Doubtfire. Actually, that whole movie is, is so wonderful. But the story unfolds like this. Robin Williams plays uh, this this artist, this actor who he specializes in dubbing over cartoon characters voices. And so there he is. And he's living the frantic lifestyle of that. In the midst of that, his marriage starts to fall apart. 
And in the court proceedings, his wife is granted custody of their children. And it's devastating for Robin Williams. And so what does he do? We all know the story. He applies to be his kid's nanny and his his soon to be ex-wife's housemaid. And he applies by dressing up as a Scottish woman named Ifgenia Doubtfire. And he takes on this middle aged voluptuous woman's body and he enters into the chaos of their home, cleaning dishes, hysterically trying to make dinner. And he does all of these things because he wants to be with his children. And that's so beautiful and that's so attractive and compelling because that's what Jesus did. And the reason that that story and stories like that resonate in our hearts is because God has put that longing in your heart to be resonated with. He has said, yes, you were created to understand that the God of the Bible did not just stay out, but came near. That he didn't just try to work the court over so he could see his children. He came and came with us. He came into the home. He came into our hearts and identified with us so that he might cleanse us and make us whole. And that's humbling. It's humbling of him to do. But it's also humbling of us because what it means is that for us to to have that story be our story, it actually causes people to admit that I need someone. I need God to come alongside me because I am that sinful person in the river. I am the person who has that heart that needs to be cleansed. And we hate we hate admitting stuff like that about ourselves. But the way the way the Bible stresses that that is the way to freedom is that time of finally being able to say, look yourself in the mirror and honestly say, yes, I did that. I can't run from it. I've tried my life to conceal it and hide it and to make everyone else think I'm doing OK. But before God, if you're ever to believe the gospel and have it come and change your heart, there is that fundamental point and the ongoing implications of that of saying, I am messed up. And the good news that Jesus comes to announce to us, which is so humbling and beautiful, is that he came to save messed up people. He came to redeem screwed up people. He came to identify with us, and that is humbling. Friends, when your life begins to be more and more consumed by what Jesus did for you, Rather than what you do for Jesus or what you have not done for Jesus, when your life becomes more and more consumed with Jesus Christ's actions on your behalf, then you've probably become a Christian. Because Christians are not people who live their lives trying to appease and work for God's pleasure and his his pleasure and his approval. Christians are people who work out of God's pleasure and his approval. They are people who already have it, who know that God, through Jesus, has done something for them that they could never do do for themselves and are now living in light of that reality. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that is good news. So the good news is here and it's humbling. So what is it? What is the good news that Jesus came to announce It's right there in verses 12 through 15. Hopefully it'll be up on the screen. If not, there it is. Let's read it together. At once, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 
He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Here it is. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near. Why? Because the king is here. Jesus, in his declaration, is saying, I am the forever king of the world and I am here. Nothing will ever be the same. And he's looking at the people whose lives had been oppressed and whose lives were falling apart. And he's looking at you and me whose lives have been oppressed by sin and slavery, whether our own or that in society or in the system. And we've been oppressed and we've been beat down by that. And Jesus comes and says, the good news is here. The kingdom of God is here. The king is here. And that is something to celebrate. Because you see what it means for Jesus to be king is right there in the passage. It means that for the first time in history, there was someone who went head to head with pure, faultless evil, with with the worst kind of evil, Satan himself. It's like breaking bad, pure crystal meth kind of evil. Jesus goes head to head with Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and he comes out saying, guess what? I just won. I beat Satan. And for the first time in the world, there was someone who did not give in to the temptations that Satan brought. That is good, good news. And that means that the evil structures, the power structures, the oppressive structures of sin and everything at work in the world has been defeated and is now crumbling down because the king is here and he is powerful to do that. Let me close with this story. For most of my life, I I treated food as a means to an end. Food was something that when I was young, I ate to get full. Uh, As I moved into high school, food was something that I handled in order to uh, satiate my boredom. Because, right, that's what high school people are. You come home from school or from your athletics and you just kind of sit there, especially if you're public school, you don't have to do homework. So food was something that made me not bored. When I got to college, I wanted to gain weight because my license actually to this day still has my high school weight on it. One forty seven. Pretty awesome. I wanted to gain weight so I wouldn't just be rail thin. So I started eating to gain weight. I wanted to get strong toward the end of college. I became obsessed with that being strong body thing. And I've developed all sorts of weird body image issues. That's another story. Um, but I began to eat as a way to to feed that craving and that desire to have my body look a certain way. Continued out of college. And then when I was 24, I met Sarah. We met in Nashville. Sarah is from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And one thing I learned very quickly is that Baton Rouge and most of Louisiana is a food culture. It's a food culture. They have fresh seafood at their disposal. They have all these wonderful spices that they know how to use correctly. And so when you go down to Louisiana, you have really good food. And I did time after time after time again. And what happened for me in that process as I got to know Sarah and her family in that place better is that food no longer was just something that I used primarily, although I still did use it in my messed upness. But food became something beautiful to me. 
You see, I met somebody who changed the way that I saw something very normal and ordinary. And what I want to ask you this morning is, has Jesus not just been useful to you, but has Jesus become beautiful to you? Has he become somebody who in and of himself has value and beauty and worth and power? Or is he just something that you're using to be or do something else? Friends, you will know that the gospel message, the good news that he came to declare has landed in your heart when he becomes beautiful in and of himself. And what he has done on behalf of sinners becomes true for you. He won't just be useful to you. He will be real to you. So what happens if he's real to the whole room of us here? And what happens if we move out into the world being transformed by him and continue to be transformed more and more to be like him by his spirit? And we begin to be people who don't just use power for power's sake, but use power to serve people. And what happens if we begin to use our money, money, not just for our own self or to lord it over people, but to help people and to serve them? What happens when that spirit of Jesus changes us? It begins to change the city. It begins to change the people around us. It begins to change the whole world around us. And what you have to know is that that's exactly why Jesus came. He didn't just come to change us individually. He came to change us corporately. He came to change the world. Because guess what? He had the best news the world has ever heard. And the question you have to ask yourself is, what will you do with it today? Will you take it? Will you let it come into your body, into your heart and change you? Or will you acknowledge it and say, that's nice. My hope, prayer, my beg of the Lord is that He would come in and begin to soften your heart that it might begin to change you right now if it hasn't already. And that you might live a life that continues to be affected and infected by that gospel proclamation. Would you believe it? Would you live in light of it today? Let's pray and ask Him to do that in our hearts right now.